Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have the all-time great and Adaptation regular, Christian Fibodo on the mics. Again, be prepared to be blown away and your gym IQ leveled up significantly. This podcast with Christian is yet another paradigm-shattering discussion. This time about optimal training modalities, training to failure, overtraining, and how much muscle can a natural lifter gain in their lifetime. Christian Thibodeau, with 25-plus years lifting and coaching experience, has written the book on weightlifting for athletic performance and bodybuilding gains. With over 530 articles on T-Nation alone, combined with extensive courses on his website, fibarmy.com, as well as his muscle training camps, Christian is a leading authority in this space. It would absolutely benefit you to cling on to his every word. In episode 103 with Paul Carter, titled How to Maximize Natty Muscle Growth, Paul dropped some fundamental tenets of muscle growth that was hard to swallow. It butted heads with many opposing views of muscle development, but it sounded both plausible, logical, and backed up by many successful physiques. Christian and Paul are actually close friends and respected peers as they are both regular contributors on T-Nation. And it turns out that they share many of the same principles of muscle growth with subtle takes on a few subtopics. Ultimately though, they converge on what they have seen to work for them and countless thousand other lifters. Well, you can think of this interview with Christian Thibodeau as part two to episode 103. We double click into some of the same topics, offering alternative perspectives with similar conclusions. It also extends the discussion on the detrimental effects of overtraining and how to know if you are in actual fact overtrained. We do spend a lot of time unpacking the volume and training to failure debates, which is truly fascinating. We also cover Christian's current training, his biggest training mistakes, and the most supported view on how much muscle can you add onto an untrained natural lifter's body. And as always, this discussion with Christian is jam-packed with science, logic, and experience. It has the opportunity to fundamentally shift your approach to the gym and building muscle. It has for me yet again. I'm telling this guy is just insane with his wisdom. So if you want a preview of what we discuss in a bit more depth, head over to the link in your podcast player that will take you straight through to the full show notes. And listen, legitimately, this episode combined with 103 has changed so much in my mind. So much so that I have personally adopted Paul and Christian's principles and I'm really enjoying their approach. It is an incredible feeling to be training intensively, but not in an exhaustive fashion. I'm feeling great. My my strength is improving. My energy throughout the day has improved because I train in the morning. It really is an interesting modality, one I'm willing to explore more. And I'll actually be sharing our Christian and Paul-inspired workout plan in our upcoming December 19 Hyper Workouts training program. You can subscribe to the Adaptation newsletter to get informed when this drops, which will be early December 2019. Okay, enough already. I think it's time. 
it's time for you to enjoy your training mentality upgrade in this episode. You won't be disappointed. Let's get to it. The Oracle of Weightlifting and Gym Gains, Christian Thibodeau. Adaptation is Well, listen, thank you for um, being gracious with your time yet again, man. I, you know, it, these conversations with you are are the best. I love them. I learn so much from you. And it it really kind of transforms and directs my my thinking on on training, on nutrition every time. And so um, I'm hoping today is going to be no exception. We are recording. So let's just get going. What I was hoping for, Christian, is that um, we've spoken about neurotyping to death. <laughs> Yeah. We should we should probably park that and for our, our fourth conversation, maybe do something a bit different. So um, I know we backed and forth a little on email and it seems like a good idea that it'd be good for the audience to hear a little bit about your training, uh, you know, both current and historical. Um, and then maybe we can get into your opinion on some kind of hot topics or popular debates around training uh, to see if you can help us, me, uh, work through the gym and maximize our gains. How does that sound for you, man? Absolutely. Sound good? Yep. Cool, man. Cool. So why don't we get started with your training? So I, I guess my first curiosity is what are you doing right now? You know, what's your priorities? Um, how are you training in the gym and what are your goals? Well, uh, my goals are always the same. I want to improve. However, of course, when you reach a certain age, like I'm 42, it's not, I'm, I'm not old. But like from a, from a training age perspective, I have over 25, 27 years of serious training under my belt. And that's long as far as training age is concerned. And the fact is that uh, you, and we actually, I know that you want to talk about that topic, but there's a limit to how much muscle a, a person can build on, on his frame. And that is roughly 40 to 60 pounds, uh, of course, uh, you, you have to, to, to transfer that into kilos, but 40 to 60 pounds over what your normal agile body weight would have been would be the limit of muscle that a natural person can build. So, for example, uh, if I look at uh, the people in my family, the guys in my family, my, my, my brothers, my, my father, my uncles, uh, it's pretty safe to say that at my height, my normal adult body weight would have been around 170 pounds. And right now, I'm around 218, and I've been 218, 222 for the past, I want to say, eight years, probably even longer than that. Now, I can change the way my body looks depending on how I train. I can put a bit more muscle on the upper body, a bit, and then I will lose muscle in the lower body to compensate the eye. I, I, I reach pretty much the limit amount of muscle that my body allows me to carry. I find, and that's a theory I have, I call it the muscle migration theory, and it's not something you can prove, it's not scientific, but I believe that once you have attained like the limit amount of muscle mass your body can carry, you can still change the way you look by reducing muscle mass somewhere and adding muscle mass elsewhere. It's like your body has that limit amount of tissue it allows you to carry on your frame, and once you reach that, you can still change quite a bit how you look. So, so me, because I have 27 years of hardcore lifting experience and with never significant layoffs in that, I'm pretty close to the limit amount of size I can have. In fact, I would say that I'm probably a bit smaller than, than when I was at my biggest because while traveling with the kids, 
Uh, I don't have the same energy I had. My, my shoulders are bummed. But I'm still trying to get better and better and better. Now, the way I'm training, uh, it, it's really basic. And I know that you talk to my friend, Paul Carter. And Paul and I agree on many things when it comes to optimal training. And now, the way I'm training myself is not the way I train athletes, for example, because athletes have a different goal. I just want to be a bit more muscular. I want to be leaner and I want to get stronger gradually on a big basic lift. I don't need to sprint fast or be good at a sport. So, so me, my training, it, it, it's pretty basic. I mean, if you know uh, Jim Wendler's 531, uh, yeah. which is like you have that one big lift and you prioritize it over three weeks and there's one week of deload. It's very similar to what I'm doing for my main lift. Every workout, I have one main lift. Now, because of my shoulder issues, my lifts are uh, safety bar squat because safety bar squat po pose a lot less stress on my shoulder. Then it's going to be um, the football bar bench press, which is a, a, a barbell that with parallel handles instead of that regular bar. So it's less stressful in the shoulder joint. Then it's going to be deadlift. Uh, and then it's going to be incline bench press with a fat bar, which is fine on my shoulder for some reason. So these are my four main lifts. I do one per day. Then I will always do a secondary movement that will be a pulling exercise. So I pull every single workout. Could be a T-bar row, could be a seated row, could be a chin-up. I want to pull every day. And then I will add two to three isolation exercises just to work on the weakness of the main lift of the day. And these isolation movements are done with low volume, one work set, but to absolute failure, oftentimes using post-failure method like uh, – Rest pause, like drop sets, uh, like adding partial reps at the end of a set, ISO old at the end of a set, some things like that. So I will take like two or three gradually harder warm-up set, then leading to that one hard work set. The the, the main lift of the day, like the, 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 the safety bar squat, the deadlift, the bench press, the incline press, these are also done with the with the one hard work set. I use the five through run scheme by Wendler because it, it's it, you can easily find a spreadsheet and it works with my schedule. So you have the, those two warm-up sets, then you have one all-out set. And the system gives you a target goal and a, tar a target reps and target weight. So let's say I have 300 pounds on the bench press. The goal is to hit six reps. Well, my goal, would, um, to, the goal is to hit five reps. My goal would be to get at least five, ideally more. I want to beat the workout. But there's that still that one all-out work set. And then the, uh, the the pulling exercise, normally I, I will keep two, one or two reps in a tank doing three or four sets of six reps roughly. So it's still low volume. My sessions will last me around 45 minutes. But I train pretty much every day when I'm at home. Of course, when I travel, I normally don't train for four or five days. So that's why I can actually train six days a week and, and recover because twice a month I have four days off. So I can, or even five days off sometimes. So I can actually recover there. Okay, well, that's the, there's a lot of things I want to want to ask more questions on. So, you're you're, you're talking about quite a a low volume regime, um, similar to the discussion I had with Paul only a couple of weeks ago. Um, you're talking about one hard work set across your um, isolation or accessory exercises, as well as your main lift. And when you say work set, um, this is your all out to failure. Set at the end where you you've got the right weight in your hands and you're aiming for to beat to beat the goal of five reps or more whatever that number is. That would be for the heavy lift for the for, for the isolation. What I would do is I don't I, I keep the reps a bit higher for the isolation work. For I would I would shoot for eight to ten. Mm -hmm. It failed at eight to ten reps. 
Then oftentimes I will rest 10 seconds and then it failure again. So maybe three or four additional reps and I will rest another 10 seconds and then do an extra one or two reps. That will be a, that one hard set. But to get to that, I would have one to three gradually heavier set, which both prepare me for that work set, but also allows me to select the proper weight. So it's a, it's a bit different than the than the big lift, which is, is periodized in advance. And I, I will adjust the weight I'm going to be using next week based on my performance this week. For example, if I had 300 pounds and my goal was five and I hit eight, then and if next week my goal was 305, then I would make that goal 310 because I beat the workout. So I have a, I have a whole spreadsheet that can that can do that, but it, it's it's a general consensus. But yeah, it, it revolves around one hard set, and it's actually different than how I train athletes. When I train athletes, we do more work sets, and I keep two reps in a tank because it's a different goal. Athletes that I work with, they don't need to build muscle. Going to failure is more effective if you want to build maximum muscle mass. In fact, it is likely the main driver for muscle growth, how hard you are pushing these sets. So uh, going like maybe in big movement, it's probably better to stay one rep short, one reps in reserve. On isolation work, on machine work, you can go to failure. It should go to failure. But with an athlete, you don't want that. With an athlete, the goal is not maximizing muscle growth. It's to maximize performance. And one thing is how hard you push a set plays a big role on cortisol production. And cortisol will actually increase adrenaline. That's one thing that we discussed in the neurotyping section. Cortisol is the stress hormone, and its goal is to make sure that your body is able to face any potential stress. So when the body releases cortisol, one of the effects would be to increase also adrenaline. Cortisol will increase the conversion of noradrenaline into adrenaline. So cortisol will amp you up by increasing adrenaline. Now, and that allows you to be strong and you work out, perform better. The downside of that is that the adrenaline, when it binds to the adrenergic receptors, specifically the beta adrenergic receptors, the receptors that connect to adrenaline to amp you up, these receptors are extremely fragile. They, they, they can downregulate or desensitize themselves very easily. The reason is simple. Because when you are under high adrenaline, it's not safe for your health. It increases blood pressure. It increases heart contraction strength, increased heart rate. It's not something you want to be. It's not a zone you want to be in all the time. It's dangerous. So, so the body will protect itself. If it feels overstimulated, it will protect itself against yourself by making your receptors less responsive to adrenaline. So, so that you don't get that into that same danger zone too often. Uh, recent studies have shown that only with like excessively high training loads, you can desensitize those receptors by 37% in two weeks, meaning that your body responds much, much, much less to adrenaline. And that takes away your motivation, takes away your strength, your speed. That is what we call overtraining. It's in most cases, when it comes to lifting weight or strength, overtraining is mostly a desensitization of the adrenergic receptors. So, so with athletes, you don't want to go there because an athlete is not just lifting weights in the weight room. The athlete has to practice a sport. The athlete has to do sprint work. The athlete has to do conditioning work. So if you go to failure, you burn yourself out in a gym, it will negatively affect your performance. We have, okay, and I'm going to like go in the future because I know overtraining is something that you want to cover. And 
overtraining, as I mentioned, of course, there's the hormonal aspect of overtraining, but really overtraining. When we are talking about overtraining caused by weightlifting or by excessive stress, it is all connected to excess cortisol. It's all connected to excess cortisol. Cortisol, when it's, it, it's released in excess, will have those following effects that can lead to those symptoms that we associate with overtraining. First, cortisol is made, is made for, from pregnenolone, the same mother hormone that also makes up testosterone, estrogen, progesterone. Androstenedione, and, and, and uh, DHEA. Uh, so, so when you overproduce cortisol, the effect is you can deplete pregnenolone and you have less raw material available to make up testosterone or estrogen. So many of the symptoms that we feel when you are overtrained, lack of libido, for example, uh, more body fat storage, it, it's all connected with lower testosterone or lower estrogen caused by too much cortisol. Then you have the symptoms on, uh, on the nervous, of the nervous system, drop in motivation, drop in strength production, drop in power production, decrease in movement coordination, less resiliency, less self-esteem, lower self-confidence. These are all symptoms of your brain is not responding to your own adrenaline. You feel crash. You feel no energy, no motivation. That's because you produce so much cortisol. And when you produce cortisol, you produce adrenaline. You overproduce cortisol, you also overproduce adrenaline. And that overproduction in adrenaline will make your receptors resistant. When they are resistant, they cannot respond to your own adrenaline. Then you have the same symptoms as someone who suffers from caffeine withdrawal, which is not pleasant. So, so this is overtraining, and it's all caused by excess cortisol. So when we look at training, when we look at training, we have five main variables that can increase cortisol, five main variables that can thus contribute to making you what we call overtraining. First, the first one and the biggest one is training volume. Cortisol's main, one of the main functions of cortisol when we're training and in life in general is to mobilize stored energy. When I'm fighting a tiger, okay, cortisol is the readiness hormone. Cortisol is to make sure that any threat I face, I can fight, okay, or I can flee. So if I'm fighting a tiger, I, I don't want to run out of fuel mid-fight. If I'm running away from a tiger, I don't want to run out of fuel when I'm running away. It's not good for survival. So cortisol's main function is to mobilize stored energy. The more energy I need, the more energy I burn, the more energy I need to mobilize, the more cortisol I produce. That's why the higher the volume, the higher the cortisol. That's the, one, the number one variable when it comes to increasing cortisol production in training. The second one is intensiveness, not intensity. Intensiveness is how hard you are pushing your sets. If I'm going to failure, my intensiveness is higher than if I leave two reps in a tank. So how hard I'm pushing my set also triggers that cortisol, that adrenaline response because my body feels that, dude, I'm approaching my limit. I need an extra boost to power through it. The body doesn't know you're squatting and you want a big build quad, big quads. Your body only knows there's a big-ass weight trying to crush you down, and if you don't lift it, you die underneath. So when it feels it's about to fail, it will give you that last jolt of energy, and that requires cortisol, okay? 
so intensiveness is also a variable that can increase cortisol. The third one is psychological stress. Psychological stress can be related to the amount of weight on the bar, for example. Let's say that I'm, I have 250 kilos on the bar. I've never lifted that before. I will be anxious. I will be stressed out. I will be pacing left and right in the gym. I'm going to try to pump myself up to be able to do the set. And lo and behold, I do it, and it's actually easy. Why? Because all that stress, that anxiety, that, that fear of the weight triggered a huge adrenaline spike to allow me to survive that situation that is seen as threatening for my own health. And that requires, once again, cortisol and adrenaline. So the more psychological stress you have in a workout, the more you fear a workout, the more cortisol you produce. I talked about weight, but it can also be something like I've never – I'm not in good physical condition. Uh, and even just walking up a flight of stairs is hard for me. And I ask you, you ask me to do hard intervals. Well, while I'm doing the intervals, I will have a, a tightening of my chest. My, my breathing is hard. I will panic. That's a psychological stress. So anything that causes that, that, that stress response will also increase cortisol. The fourth one is neurological demands. The harder the nervous system needs to work, the more adrenaline and cortisol you produce. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, I used to, to, to teach Olympic lifting group classes to CrossFit participants, not only athletes, but like just the average person who's never trained before and they want to do CrossFit. They come to my classes to learn to, to snatch and clean and jerk. And with these people, we'll use only the broomstick or a bar, an empty barbell and practice with sets of three reps, not tiring at all. Yet after 10 minutes, they're drenched in sweat. The reason is that the brain needs so much focus to learn a new skill that it needs to amp up the brain, activates the brain, and that requires adrenaline. And that, by extension, requires cortisol. So every time you do an exercise that you don't master, when you need to learn a new movement, or by extension, any exercise that is more complex, if I'm doing a power snatch, it has a greater neurological demand than the back squat. The back squat has a greater neurological demand than the bench press. The bench press has a greater neurological demand than the barrel curl, for example. So the more complex a movement is, the more the brain needs to work to coordinate the action, the higher the potential cortisol release. So that's the fourth one. And the fifth one is rest intervals. Uh, the shorter rest intervals, the more adrenaline is released, the more cortisol you release also. So, so when you're working with an athlete, for example, an athlete, I want to make him stronger and more powerful. So the lifts will be heavy. So right from the start, the psychological stress is higher. We also use very intense training methods. So the, uh, the, the psychological stress is even higher. And I'm using mostly big basic lifts, Olympic lifts, strength lift. So the neurological demand is very high also to start with. So I cannot push the other variables high with an athlete. Otherwise, it will produce too much cortisol. You can probably have two of the five variables elevated in a workout if you don't have too much life stress, you can probably tolerate that. Ideally, it would be one. But two, you can probably live with that if you don't have too much stress in your life. But if you push three or four or five of these variables up at the same time, you have high volume, big compound movements, fucking heavy weights. Then I can guarantee that within four weeks, you're going to crash. 
because you're producing so much adrenaline during the workout because, and also so much cortisol because both are connected, you will desensitize your receptors and you will probably gradually decrease your testosterone levels. So with athletes, I cannot use a high volume. With athletes, very, very low volume. Uh, I, I don't use lots of exercise variation because every time I throw in a new movement, it's more neurological stress. And I don't push those sets too hard because I want to be able to use big basic lifts. I want to use methods that have a very, very high force production. Uh, so, so I want to keep all the other variables low. But if me, I'm training to build muscle, I don't use the same uh, exercise. I don't use the same training methods. I don't use training loads. So I can focus on other variables. The key here is you can have one or two variables high, but the other ones need to be lowered. Otherwise, you won't be able to recover. So, okay, the, the this is interesting because I do some of the things you talk about. You know, I I probably do, you know, it's it's debatable. But, you know, I'll do four working sets of a given exercise, like a, a bench press. And then I might do another four working sets of something similar, uh, like an incline, but still pushing relatively hard. Um, might might be doing six reps, might be doing eight reps, might be doing ten. It's irrespective. I feel they're working sets because I feel they're pretty damn hard. Um, if I'm not doing, you know, quote unquote strength training, I am working in eight plus reps category, I might lower mm. my rest. I might only rest for one and a half minutes to get a workout done. So I might do 20, 30 sets in in a session across a couple of big lifts up front or bigger, more compoundy lifts, followed by some accessory stuff. It is very taxing. It's very demanding. I might end up doing some 15 to 20 rep stuff at the end as well. Um I don't feel that it's a I don't feel bad doing this training and I don't feel that I'm overwhelmed with stress maybe that's because I'm not pushing I intuitively know not to push hard too hard to completely you know burn myself out that being said I'm doing a bunch of stuff that you're not doing so I just want to double click into that so you're saying from a working set perspective there's one all out set and the price stuff is really ramp up stuff which I do too. I do the ramp up stuff, then I do the quote unquote four working sets. Yeah. Why? Why is that a bad thing to do it that way? Well, well, well. First of all, there's a difference between like, not feeling bad because maybe if, from a neurological perspective, like some neurotypes are, are less likely to crash than others. Uh, and you know, one thing I learned that is that, that changed a bit the neurotyping system, especially related to the the one A profile, which you are. And the, the 1A profile, I used to say that they have low dopamine production, but they are very sensitive to, to it. In fact, it's, it, it's not that. The 1B is like that. The 1A really is someone who cannot degrade or cannot inactivate dopamine or adrenaline. So basically, as soon as they release dopamine or adrenaline, it stays high. They, they cannot bring it back down. Okay. So in your case, your, your brain is meant to function with high adrenaline all the time. So my, my theory is that you probably had a protective mechanism that, that maybe because you always have high adrenaline regardless of what you do. So you probably you may, may not feel the, the, the side effects of, of the overstimulation. And the reason why a type 1A is like that, it, it's genetics. Uh, it, it has to do with the COMT, chemical O-methyltransferase enzyme. Uh, which is in a 1A, genetically speaking, it is extremely slow. So it does not degrade or deactivate adrenaline and dopamine fast. And also because of your methylation cycle, or the 1A are under methylators, 
which means they will have low serotonin, they will have low acetylcholine, uh, but they have very high dopamine and adrenaline. Anyway, so as far as why you're not feeling like crap, well, it could be that, that, as you mentioned, you're not pushing all out. It could be that your life stress is under control. Many different variables. But just because you don't feel like crap doesn't mean it's optimal. Exactly. And, you know, and that, that, that's, that's the point, Christian. It, I, I don't feel like shit, but I don't know if I could feel better if I dialed some of that back and, and prioritized one, one of those sets to, to be the, the set that I really go out on and ramp up. I've not tried that, really, if I'm honest, maybe a while ago. But recently, I've been doing three to four really kind of, quote unquote, heavier sets or the kind of failure sets across several exercises in one workout. I get through it, but maybe, maybe I'm limited there's myself. A there's a difference between getting through it. And the type 1A, by being very competitive, and because they have high adrenaline all the time, they can actually do the workout. I'm working with uh, an athlete who's a, a track cyclist. He's a 1A. And it, 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 we just started working together because he's a former client of mine that we work, we worked together like 15 years ago. And he, he contacted me again because he wants to make a comeback, but he always overtrains himself. Uh, he always pushes too much, end up doing too much volume, even even if he knows better because he's a great coach himself. Uh, so we need to tone down the volume because when he was younger, he, he could tolerate the volume. But now with the stress and the coaching and the, the, the family stuff, and he, he can't tolerate it as much. And there's a difference between like, I think I can do it and actually growing from it. Mm. Uh, the way you feel, and here's the danger. If your adrenaline is always high, regardless, uh, it's been that way for years. So the way you're feeling probably is not likely to change up or down. It's like you, you, you've you been like that for a long time. So you, you do the volume and you think you can do it because, well, I still feel good. I don't feel like crap. But there's a difference between how much you can recover from and how much you can actually do in the gym. And, and I used to be like that. I mean, my, I, I did a video a while ago. And I mentioned what was my biggest training mistake or biggest regret was doing way too much volume when I was younger. Uh, in fact, I, I once did a workout. I did 100 bench press sets, 100. And in the afternoon, I did 70 bench press sets. So I, I'm no stranger. <laughs> Dude, when I was an Olympic weightlifter, and I, that, because that's the way I was brought up, when I was competing Olympic weightlifting, I was training at the National Center and our coach uh, had us do workouts that lasted about two hours and a half in the morning, then an hour and a half in the afternoon. We would routinely do 10, 12 sets of squats, for example, in a workout. Of course, these were sets of two or three reps, but still, it's still plenty of work. So I grew up in that high volume environment. So, and I honestly believe that I was doing fine because I was progressing. I was not feeling great, but I was progressing until the injury started to pop out. And what I, what I noticed is that every time I would train, I would feel great for two or three weeks, get great progress for two or three weeks. Then I would start to have injuries and I couldn't train as hard. I, I would need to take one or two weeks slower, change, do more bodybuilding stuff, don't push as heavy anymore, then go back to the heavier lifting. I would basically like gradually overreach, overtrain, quote unquote, for two or three weeks. Then I would have to be, I would be forced to take it a bit more relaxed. Then I would push like crazy again for three weeks. And eventually I, I, I just got injured because of that. And that was my biggest mistake. And I honestly believe that I actually limited my gains by doing way too much. But, you know, 
getting stronger, getting more muscular, getting leaner, it's all emotional, right? And, and we want those results right now. And we are programmed to think that more means better. And, and yeah, don't get me wrong, volume does play a role. And maybe right now, me and Paul are at the extreme. Okay, I don't always do that low volume. The athletes I train, they don't do the same amount of volume I do. They do, they do quite a bit more. But for me right now, my capacity to recover, that's pretty much what I can do. I mean, I've, I've done the type of training you mentioned before, and it, it, it did work. I mean, it's still maybe, uh, let's say, 12 sets per muscle in a workout. It's not overkill. I mean, it's not like some coaches would recommend 30, 40 work sets. But I believe that me, me, if I did that right now, it would be too much. But again, if you want to emphasize volume, you can. If you emphasize volume, it means the intensiveness needs to be lower. And it means that the, 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 the psychological stress would be lower and neurological stress need to be lower. So, for example, if you stick to movements you know and, and love, neurologically speaking and psychologically speaking, they are not as draining. So you can probably have a moderate amount of volume, moderate amount of intensity. So if you leave one, two reps in a tank, you can probably do 12 sets, 15 sets per muscle and recover. If you were to do 25 sets or if you were to, to combine 15 sets with going to failure on those work sets, there's no way you can recover if you're natural. I mean, you, you can do it, but you're not going to grow optimally from that. And high volume, generally speaking, Christian, um, you say you can do it, but obviously you have to reduce the intensiveness down. Um would you do it? You're, you're saying you don't you don't go high volume for your reasons, but if if your goal isn't any anything else other than you know to maximize your natural muscle gains, would you flirt with you know bodybuilder you know twenty rep or fifteen rep plus type um, uh, sets and maybe do multiple sets, low rest periods? Would you do that? Does that have benefit? I, I, I do it. In every client I have that is training for body composition, I have one phase out of four that's like that. I, I call it the contrarian phase. Basically, you do everything I normally tell you not to do. <laughs> okay. okay, let's be okay. If you look at, for example, okay, uh, doing high reps, very short rest intervals, uh, very high volume. One of the main appeal of that is that, you know, you're going to burn more calories. You're going to increase your hormone production. It facilitates fat loss. Uh, so, so people like that. And, of course, there's a lactic acid burn that, that feels good. But, but from a body composition perspective, people believe that it's going to help me get leaner. Now, on the short term, yes, three or four weeks, it actually is helpful because the high, the, the shorter rest intervals will increase adrenaline, which increases energy expenditure. So there's no question it actually works. By doing more volume, you are using more energy, which of course, by mobilizing more energy, you increase your chance of fat loss. So it works. I'm not saying it doesn't work. The problem is if you do that for too long, the risk of reducing testosterone, the risk of fatiguing, not fatiguing, but downregulating the adrenal receptors is very real. So, so what I do, normally that is the last phase of a training progression. When I work with clients, even if it's just for body composition, it's still periodized. We periodize it just like we periodize for an athlete. Of course, not the same training methods. So, so we, the, the first block will set up some physiological milieu that will make the second phase more effective. For example, we build up and build up. And that last phase, 
is the contrarian phase. We do a boatload of intervals. We do high volume. We do short rest intervals. We do circuit training. We do higher reps. Just to, in that last three weeks, last boost to maximize body composition. But maintaining that over the long run would likely lead to worst results. And it's definitely not an approach I would use to maximize muscle growth. Now, you mentioned bodybuilders. I don't think that using bodybuilders as an example is great because physiologically speaking, they have like 20, 30 times the amount of testosterone in their body. So, so the body, when, when you are a pro bodybuilder, okay, and, and newsflash, pro bodybuilders take steroids. And no. that's a reality. It's not the judgment call. <laughs> it's a reality. Yeah, right. So, so when you're taking steroids, here's the thing. First, you don't have to trigger protein synthesis with the session because you have those drugs doing that for you. Second, at the cellular level, testosterone or steroids, which are basically modified uh, version of testosterone, they also bind to the same receptors, the, uh, andro uh, androgenic receptors. So you have the, the, the muscle cell, for example, okay? And then you have the androgenic receptors that to which testosterone and steroids bind. And when they bind to the receptors, there's a second messenger going from the receptor to the nucleus of the cell to trigger protein synthesis. Now you also have glucocorticoid receptors to which cortisol binds. So the cortisol will bind to the receptors and then they use a second messenger to send a message to the nucleus of the cell, increases protein breakdown, for example, at the muscular level. Here's the thing, both will use the same second messenger. So when you have an abundance of steroid that will overload all those androgenic receptors, not only do you have a greater anabolic response, you also take away a lot of the second messengers that the, the cortisol now cannot use. So at the, at the muscle muscular level, steroid use will decrease the negative effect of cortisol on muscle growth. That's one of the reasons why those steroid-using bodybuilders can actually do a lot more volume. They can also do very high reps. Because here's the thing, and, and that's probably something that you, you, you discussed with Paul. Okay, Whether you do six sets, uh, six reps, or 20 reps in a set, if you stop the set at the same level of intensity, let's say one rep in reserve or two failure, in both cases, you're going to have the exact same number of maximally effective reps. So in theory, it would be possible to build the exact same amount of muscle with 50%, 40% weight, 30 reps, as it is with 80% weight for eight reps. Here's the problem. And actually, there's a study showing that it's possible, but they only used one exercise. So that's the limited limitation of that, that study. But here's the thing. If you do those all your exercises with that high volume, 20, 30 reps, and you do that across six exercises, now you need to literally do five or four times the volume you, you would do to get the exact same stimulus. At the end, you get the same number of maximally effective reps as if you did those uh, sets of six reps or eight reps on across your exercises. So you have literally three or four times the volume to get the same training effect. But now the, the added volume, because you have six exercises, will lead to a very high cortisol level, which can blunt the anabolic response to training, which is a downside uh, of the high dose, high volume reps. I'm not saying they, they can't be effective. I'm saying if that is the cornerstone of your program, the volume accumulates really fast, and as a result, you produce too much cortisol and you can limit your gains if you're natural. If you are a pro bodybuilder using a copious amount of steroids, 
even if you produce cortisol by the boatload, it doesn't matter from a muscular standpoint because cortisol cannot do its job properly. In fact, some steroids actually uh, antagonize the cortisol receptors. So that's even more powerful. Dynable, for example. So, so that's why you cannot look at, okay, this pro bodybuilder does mostly sets of 50. I mean, I'm, I'm going to tell you pro bodybuilders probably should do higher reps because the muscles hypertrophy so much and get strong so fast, the tendons cannot keep up. So if they go super heavy, the risk of injury is much higher than in natural lifter. So that's one, that's one point where Paul and I don't agree that there's a difference between how uh, an enhanced lifter and a natural lifter should train because of the cortisol issue. Do you know what? what what's kind of hitting me hard through this conversation, Christian, is there, there are, of course, lots of, lots of you know, Instagram influencers that are either into powerlifting or into bodybuilding. And, you know, we look up to them. We appreciate what they do. We try and learn from them because they've either got great physiques or amazing performance. Um, and it feels like as if the modalities that both of these extremes use have bled into what are the kind of general applicable guidelines for the everyday person who just wants to look a bit better. So yeah. we're using powerlifting, periodizing schemes, and you know, you know, one rep maxes, and you know, big lifts, and 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 using that pretty much to the exclusion of everything else in one camp. And people are using that as their kind of their god to to you know growing. And then on the other camp, you know, we've got the people that are looking at you know the Jeremy Buendias or you know, those guys and going, oh, they just look amazing. I want to look like them. Of course, they're taking steroids. But hey, if they're doing a program, which has got tons of reps and low, low rest periods, I'm going to do the same thing. It yeah. feels like we're, we're, we're taking advantage of schemes that work well for people that are very specific, and probably have some support and trying to mash it into a general program. And maybe that's where both I'm falling foul. And many others are. I mean, would you agree with that? Well, I'm probably pretty, uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's human nature. I mean, even myself, I'm prone to that. I mean, uh, not that I'm putting myself on a pedestal or anything, but I've been a strength coach for 22 years. I'm pretty well recognized as an expert, and people look up for me, look up to me for advice. And even myself, I will read a program by someone I admire. I, I want to try that program. I want to try that exercise. I remember a few years back, I wanted to get back into Olympic weightlifting, and I got really into Klokov. So I was wearing Klokov's shirt, and I was doing Klokov's program, and it, it motivated me. The human brain functions like that. We, we, we take models. We are inspired. And I believe that – and it's something I, – I did a presentation this weekend, and one thing I said is that uh, – my, my greatest asset uh, as a presenter, as a speaker, is not necessarily the quality of the material. It's the energy. I get people excited. And when they are excited, they will try harder. But the same thing can be said if the material is bad, because my material is good. I think it's good. But if you have someone on Instagram that, that excites you, I want to look like that person, and you are emotional, you have an emotional buy-in into what that person is doing because you are uh, in admiration of the person, then yeah, you might lose your objectivity. And I've been like that. I mean, and that's one thing. Like I, I um, I just uh, wrote an article on uh, the, the the movie The Game Changer, mm. and uh, hopefully it's going to be published soon on T Nation. Yeah, I can't but wait to read that. Actually, that's uh, very topical. Oh yeah, it's 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 pretty cool. But uh, uh, one thing that I mentioned is that it's absolutely I, I avoided the pitfall of trying to be too scientific. You can actually destroy that movie completely 
when you are using valid science. It, it's very easy, but it will have exactly zero effect because you cannot win an emotional argument with logic. I mean, I know I've never won a single argument against my wife. She, I always argue logically. She argues emotionally. So the same thing could be said with, with Instagram. You cannot beat emotions with logic. That person, I'm, for some reason, I'm looking at a, that guy's video. I'm amped up. I want to do that. There's no amount of logic that will allow me to say, you know what? No, that's stupid. I won't do it. You will do it because you are emotionally involved. You have an emotional buy-in. So it's really, really hard to, 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 to overcome that. It's really hard to stay objective when it comes to ourselves. Even coaches, most coaches will, will agree with me. They are great at helping other people out because they can be objective with other people, but they cannot be objective with themselves. And I used to believe that I, I was amazing at tolerating volume, that I could tolerate the highest amount of volume as everybody. I was a hard worker. I, I would be training twice a day. I was mentioned the, the 100 bench press set, but doing 30 reps, 30 reps, 30 sets on, on bench press was routine for me. You know, I was a very, when I was doing snatches, clean and jerk Olympic weightlifting, I could snatch nonstop for two hours, super hard worker. And I believe that, you know, my greatest skill set is I can tolerate volume. I just didn't realize I was not progressing. Well, I, I kind of realized it when I was training at the national center and the way our coach program, he did not give us a number of sets to perform. He gave us a number of reps per set. He gave us an intensity range. It's 80, 85%. And he gave us a duration, 20, 30 minutes, 40 exercise. So in that duration, we would do the number of sets we felt comfortable doing. So if we had snatch, 85%, three reps, 30 minutes, in 30 minutes, I could do 20 sets. A guy who was training in the gym in the same time frame would do four sets. And that frustrated me because well, he's always joking around. And you know what? He was snatching literally 30 kilos more than I was. He was snatching 160. And that frustrated me. I'm, I'm working three times as hard as this guy, and he's kicking my ass. But it didn't. It never, never crossed my mind that it's because I was doing too much because I didn't feel like crap. Oh, I didn't think so. And I was convinced that volume was that I'm going to work harder than everybody else. I'm going to get better results. Uh, my, my, my assumption was that, okay, that guy has great genetics. It's not that I'm doing too much work. See, that, that, it's hard to be objective when it comes to yourself. Mm. And, and I think we all prize our, ourselves on, you know, quote, unquote, fitness, uh, endurance, and the ability to do yeah. more work. Being a hard um, worker. And, yeah, being a hard worker. But as I, I think I'm re reading into this conversation a little bit, hard work is, is you know, correlated to, you know, uh, more cortisol and more cal more calories burned for sure, um, but not necessarily. You know, more work equals more muscle growth as a result. Uh, and maybe I've fallen foul of that. If I'm honest, I feel that you know volume is the you know the the pinnacle of progressive overload. And and you know I, ha I was schooled by Paul when I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, saying volume. If you look at that volume load is um, load of bullshit. In in his opinion, it was the wrong metric. The metric for him was get stronger it gets stronger in the right rep range with the right repetition style it's not it's not one one or hamstrung because i they're playing but paul is correct in that you want to load uh, a certain zone it's six to ten reps roughly per, per set roughly and you want to get gradually stronger in, in that zone now the thing is that volume 
at one point can actually contribute to making you stronger, especially with people with a less efficient nervous system. And, and that's where I will, I will put a caveat here, which is the word I like to use because it makes me sound smart. Latin is, is really good at making you sound smart. <laughs> and uh, Paul, I will include myself in that, in that category, but Paul has actually better genetics than me and is better genetic than pretty much everybody. But he, he worked super hard, don't get me wrong. But any guy who is at the top, who, who reached a very high level of performance, a really high level of development, they now tend, and I think everybody's like that, they tend to look at a, a problem from their own perspective and think it applies to everybody else. Now, when you have been training, like Paul was a successful powerlifter, he bench pressed close to 500, he shoulder pressed over 300 uh, pounds, of course, super deadlifted, what, like three, 350 kilos, something like that, big, that, that, that big weight. And he's been training for 30 years, roughly. Very effective nervous system. When you have a very effective nervous system, you don't need as much volume because it's much easier for you to recruit those fast twitch muscle fibers. You also have already a very big basis of strength. So you don't need a lot of volume to, to get optimized again. So, so you, you, can, you can do that low volume, and that's what I do, that's what Paul does, and it works great, especially when you're getting older and you have done tons and tons of lifting, your joints are aching. You, it's, it's actually easier for someone who's super strong to overtrain by doing volume than someone who is weaker. Because, okay, let's say Paul or myself, let's say we're bench pressing, let's say 400 or like 180 kilos, for example, for six reps. It's gonna cause a lot more stress than someone who benches 80 kilos for six reps. Even if in both cases, it's the same percentage, let's say 90%, 80%, okay? Because, yes, the muscle gets, gets bigger, which allows me to use that, that lift at 180, but the tendons, the ligaments, the bones, they don't get stronger at the same rate. The nervous system is not the same. So when you're stronger, that one all-out set can cause a lot more trauma than someone who benches 180, right? So I, I still believe that, that uh, what Paul is saying is correct. That's what I'm saying also, that, that like, intensiveness is for muscle mass, it's likely more important than volume. But I believe that the less muscular development you have, the lower strength levels you have, the more volume you need. So that's why I still like to use accumulation phases. What I like to do is we, I use block periodization. So during an accumulation phase, we will be more on the volume side of the equations. We have five variable five variables to play with. It's like an equalizer. If you if one variable goes up, the other goes down. So for during an accumulation block, we will increase the volume, not, not to a new main level, but, but higher than the other block. We will decrease the, the, the intensiveness to allow us to do more volume, more volume, shorter rest intervals. Then we will do an intensification block, which will use heavier weights. Now, depending on your goal, if your goal is simply to get more muscular, that intensification phase might be sets of six. For the power lifter, it might be sets of three. It's different, but it's, it's heavier weight, and we will decrease the volume and increase the intensiveness. So, so you can wave through both. And I believe that the more, quote, unquote, beginner somebody is, the more he needs to focus on building, more, maybe more volume, simply because he is. Well, right? Pardon? Yeah, absolutely. Every, every 
repetition you do is movement practice. You need to acquire that skill. It also is better to strengthen the tendons. Your tendons need more volume to get stronger. So that's one place where the very high rep stuff is important. So, the, but, but if you look at a, like a, the, 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 a very strong individual, individual at the end of the spectrum, the tendons are already strong. The muscles are already pretty big. The nervous system is maximally efficient. Then when he does that one all-out set, it's going to be a much greater stimulus than someone who has a very inefficient nervous system, who has weaker tendons, protective mechanisms will kick in much earlier. Uh, so so th that's something you need to consider. So you, there's never one answer that's universally true for everybody. But there are principles. And I believe that Paul is correct, that intensiveness, how hard you're pushing a set, is more important for driving hypertrophy than, than uh, metabolites accumulation or, or volume. But that's not to say that the later don't have a place or a role in hypertrophy. Okay. All right. So then let's let's take that and let's just kind of um, go into that a little further. So you're talking about um, this idea of training to failure. Now, you know, I, I listen to a load of podcasts. I, I read a bunch of articles. I follow uh, several people. And this seems to be hotly debated. Now, I wouldn't say that everyone who debates it has a body that I aspire to. Therefore, you know, there, there is some judgment place there going, you know, if if you know so much, why are you not the physique that I want? Um, that being said, you know, a lot of people call out scientific studies um, that sit on both sides of the camp, saying, for example, training to failure has no additional effect when comparing to people that don't, uh, when they've done these clinical studies. And then others like uh, like yourself, like Paul, would say training to failure is where the growth happens because it's at those last None couple necessary. of reps. Now, tell me, like, yeah, None where necessary. do you sit on on that? The, the actual act of hitting failure does not have a, a special magical effect on growth. Just because you hit failure, there's not something magical that happens there, right? Uh, it's that if you stop a set too short you are missing out on those maximally effective reps. Okay, I, Paul probably mentioned that. I'm, I'm also going to explain that because I think it needs to be uh, like talked about because it's a very important concept. A maximally effective rep is a rep that will contribute to stimulating as much growth as you could from that exercise. And to do that, you need to recruit the fast-twitch muscle fibers and load those fast-twitch muscle fibers enough to trigger adaptation in those fibers. And to get maximum fast-twitch fiber activation, you need to reach a relative load of around 80%. That's pretty well established. Now, that 80% is not the load on the bar. That 80% is how heavy that weight is relative to the amount of force you can produce right now. For example, Okay, you will have, depending on the weight okay, on the bar, you will have a decrease in strength of 1% to 4% per repetition. 1%, of course, we'll, we'll talk about sets using 30 40 50% of your 1RM. Normally, for, with the weights and the reps we are using, it's mostly 2 to 4% decrease in strength per repetition. So let's say you have 70% on the bar. That first rep, it's, it's, it, let's say it's 70% because you have no fatigue. But, but rep number two, I have maybe 2% fatigue. So now the weight is 72% of my potential because my, for my strength decreased by 2%. By rep number three, it's 74%. The next rep, 76, 78, 80. Now from that rep, every rep would be maximally effective reps. So that's what 
that's why you need to get close to failure because once I hit 80% of the field weight, all those reps are those that count. If I stop two reps short of failure, I might get only three or four in a set. If I go to failure, maybe I get five, maybe six. So that's the difference. You need probably 15 maximally effective reps per exercise to trigger a good growth stimulus. Up to 30% is tolerable for a muscle. So Did you say 15 if, just there? For, for an exercise, for example. So, so let's say that... So that, that would if, be... But if you're only doing one one all-out work set, how are you going to get those seven. 15? That's probably seven. So you probably need to, for a muscle. You probably need a second set. Right. Because that one one set to failure, regardless of the weight, one set to failure will give you seven maximally effective reps. Normally. Oh, seven. Right. Yeah, but yeah. obviously if you're only if you doing to, four to six you reps, to failure, you wouldn't if get you that get right. real failure, which I don't always recommend. In fact, I only recommend going to failure on isolation movements, never on big compound movements. Right. I would go to what I call technical failure. You stop when you have one rep in reserve before technique has to break down to allow you to complete the lift. And there's the thing, right? Remember the five variables, volume, intensiveness, psychological stress, neurological demand, rest intervals. All five variables can increase cortisol level, thus adrenaline level, and can contribute to making it harder to lose, to, to gain muscle. Now, if I'm squatting, let's say I'm doing a squat, the neurological demand of a squat is very high, okay? So I don't want to go to failure on a squat because going to failure on a movement that is neurologically demanding might lead to excess adrenaline, excess cortisol because it's too traumatic. If I use a biceps curl on a machine, the neurological demand is very, very, very low. So I can push that to failure without any potential side effect on neurological recovery, for example. Okay. So normally, the, the, the higher the exercise is on the neurological scale, the less you go to failure. So on the Olympic lifts, you should never go to failure unless you miss a lift because of technique issue. On a squat, deadlift, movement that's load the spine, for example, you don't want to go to failure because you're going to have a technical breakdown before you hit failure. On you, movements, I, sorry, sorry. You would you would see a lot of people that it looks like they've gone to failure uh, on on both of those on both deadlifts and squats, whether it's a couple of reps in or it's six reps in. But you you, you see those last one or two reps can look a bit shaky. Yeah, exactly. And and to me, that's not something you want because the nervous system will remember the last thing you did the most. So if you, if you did a shitty rep on deadlift on your last rep, that is the one that will have the greatest impact on neurological. On, uh, on movement pattern optimization. So you, you can actually have a degradation of technique from week to week. Now, here's the thing, okay? And that's the caveat I was mentioning earlier. If you've been doing squats for 20 years, for 25 years, nonstop, now the squat is so ingrained in you that it is, not, it is no longer a neurologically demanding exercise. That's why an Olympic weightlifter he can snatch and clean and jerk every single day. Even though it's a very, very neurologically demanding movement, he can do it every day very heavy because for him, because he's been doing that for 20 years, for, for 15 years, 20 years, it is no longer a neurologically demanding movement. It's a, it is as simple for him as doing a bench press for us or a curl for us. So if you take a, an advanced lifter who squatted or deadlifted all his life, 
he can push those movements pretty darn close to failure because he will not have the same technical degradation. He will not have the same neurological stress. So, so that, that's the thing you need to, to take into account. Now, also, Paul uses a lot more machine nowadays. I mean, he doesn't squat anymore. He uses that axe squat. And you can build muscle just fine with machines. But with machines, you can more easily go to failure because you won't, you won't have the technical breakdown that will, uh, will be seen with squats or deadlifts. And there's much less neurological demands on a machine lift, even if it's multi-joint. So, uh, for example, a, a machine axe squat will be less demanding, neurologically speaking, than a bench press, even though it's a, it's a lower body exercise that uses more muscle mass, just because it's a fixed movement on a machine. So it, it, these are all things you need to consider. With, with a movement that uses almost the whole body or that loads the spine, I would never go to failure. I would always stop when I feel technique is about to, to, to shut down. That's one or two reps in the tank. Uh, on movement with free weights that do not load the spine, then you could go one rep in reserve. And you know, with one rep in reserve, you still get six, maybe five maximally effective reps per set. Maybe you need to do three work sets in an exercise or two. But but that to me, that's a that's an acceptable trade-off. It's not doing six sets. But but you know you're not gonna overtrain by doing three sets on an exercise. Now, if you're doing machine exercises, you probably should shoot for that failure in that last work set or pretty darn close to it. Um, and with isolation movement, you probably should go to failure to maximize results. And when just to define failure in your eyes, right? So if, if I think about my training, um, quite often I feel that I, I am reaching a point of failure when I do bicep work. I feel that that is my instinct. I do that almost every set. Now, what, how do I define failure? For, for me is I, I get an intolerable lactic acid build, uh, build up and I get to the point where I'm no no longer able to stabilize my joints and the form starts looking really shoddy. And at that point, like it's hurting, it's burning. I feel that my my range of motion is limiting. I can't I can't squeeze it to the top anymore. And those mm-hmm. reps are getting shorter and shorter. And then I go, fine, I'm done. Now I don't know whether mentally I'm just pussing out and I'm just, you know, I, I should have just, just dug in and found that extra, or was that true failure? Would you say that's failure or would you say failure is a different place? There are different types of failure, really. You, you have muscle failure, you have movement failure, you have technical failure. Okay? Uh, muscle failure is when the muscle is no longer able to do the movement by itself uh, over the full range of movement. So, if, of course, that, that's easier to see on isolation movement. So, for example, if I'm doing biceps curl and the biceps are, are so engorged with lactate, in fact, what? Well, it's not lactic acid, it's lactic. And uh, and it's not the lactate that is the problem. The, the fact that it burns, it's actually the accumulation of hydrogen ions that right. come with the lactate at the same time. But it's not the lactate that do it, but just the fabrication. But, but that acidification, that burn, will actually lead to a decrease in the contractile strength of the muscle. Uh, because when the muscle is acidic, the neural, the, the, the nerve impulse travels less efficiently. You cannot activate the muscles quite as much. So now you have that muscle who's engorged, with blood, with fluids, it burns. You, you, you try all you, you can, but you just cannot get that last inch up, for example. To me, that muscle fail, that's muscle failure. The muscle fails to do the movement. Same thing happens, for example, if you do a curl, and at the end, just to be able to get more reps, you have to use body English, to use your traps or front delts to get the weight up. 
to me, that, that's also, that, that was muscle failure because you need to bring in new muscles to get the work done. You need to change the technique slightly to be able to continue. To me, muscle failure will be seen when you cannot make that lift while maintaining the pristine technique. That's also technical failure, by the way. Movement failure is different. Movement failure simply means I cannot move the weight. So if I'm squatting, doesn't matter if my last two reps are I'm shifting forward or, or whatever. As long as it goes up, it's not movement failure. So I, I rarely use movement failure, yet that's what I see most people doing. Reaching movement failure, so that probably gets, gets you one, maybe two more reps with shitty technique. You are not loading – you're not loading the right muscles. You, you're, you're doing the movement by shifting the stress to other muscles. So it does not really contribute to that much more growth. You see, you so, see that quite often in pull-ups, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, pull, well that's a different story. Though, but it's the same story. But because pull-ups, I would say that – and pull-ups are a good exercise if you're capable of doing them. The problem is that probably 90% of the people doing pull-ups have no business training the pull-ups. To me, if you cannot do eight very good, and I'm saying like super strict, chin above the bar, zero momentum, no form breakdown, you should not be able to do, you shouldn't do chin ups in, in your training. You should do other strengthening movement for your back. You should have full range of motion, full extension, full flexion, chin above the bar, uh, no swing, no momentum. The problem is that people, they, they can do maybe one, two, three quality chins and then they can cheat their weight up way up for five or six more reps yeah. that, that's like i'm doing a deadlift i can i will barely get two reps up but then i'm bouncing the weight so hard on the floor i can actually get five more reps uh, or i can i can do a bench press i have 225 on the bar i have 100 kilos i can get three good reps in but then i will put my feet on the bar on the bench raise my hips yeah. two feet in the air changing the leverage I can get five more reps. Okay? I, I didn't do 100 kilos for five reps. I cheated my way up. I changed the lever. That doesn't work the same muscle the same way. So, so to me, that, 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 that is not appropriate. That's why I, I prefer to use failure on either machine work or isolation work. Because on machine work, on isolation work, the chance of compensation by changing your leverage, shifting the stress to other muscles is pretty small. It's much smaller than the free weight. So on these, you can go to failure because failure will be muscle failure. Uh, on the big basic barbell lifts, personally, I prefer to get to do as many reps, many quality reps as I can. But that normally means that I will stop one rep short of muscle failure and several reps short of movement failure. When I started, the weight is about to break down, the, the form is about to break down, or I start to grind the weight up, that, then I need to stop. There's no benefit again. If you stop one rep short, you only lose one maximally effective reps. Yes, that's probably 15, 20% less growth stimulation in the set. But that's not the end of the world. You can, you can do a second set. The problem is if someone stops three or four reps short of failure, which is really what most people are doing. Most people, if you ask them after the end of a work set, how many reps did you have left in you if you really tried? They will always say maybe one or two. In reality, it's closer to four. Most people, they, they, they underestimate how many, rep, uh, how many reps they could have done or overestimate how hard they're training. So if you stop four reps short of failure, which is really what most people are doing, you will really only get two, three good maximally effective reps per set. 
If you need 15 to 30 for a muscle, dude, you're gonna, now you need a shit ton of volume, shit ton of sets to get any kind of growth. But a problem, and maybe someone who has never really lifted to that right level, never gained anything, now he does volume and all, he gains muscle for the first time. Yeah, because that's the first time you are able to get at least 15 maximally effective reps. And over the short run, that will work. But eventually, the increase in training volume, cortisol level will catch up to you. Oh, that's, that's brilliant, man. Look, I, I just love what you just said there. And as you were speaking, Christian, I was thinking about my last workout. Now, my last workout, I actually wasn't in a good spot. I was fasting for 30 hours prior. It wasn't a, it wasn't a good workout. It wasn't a good decision. But I had a couple of exercises in there, which are quite typical. I had a T-bar row, uh, not t- uh, just a, a landmine row, sorry, a landmine row. And I had a leg press. Um, and both what, what, what the, t- the, the row was like for 15 reps and the leg press was 20 to 30, wherever I wanted to go. So I loaded appropriately to get those, vol- uh, those reps in. And on both of those, I was burning, you know, I was burning hard. And I, I stopped when I got to my kind of my, my minimum goal, I got to 20 reps on the leg press, I stopped, because it was hurting. And on the, the row, I got to 15. I was like, that's it, I'm done. But I knew I wasn't done. I knew I wasn't done. But it was it was just hurting. It was horrible. I just I wanted I wanted out. And as soon as I stopped, it was like oh, agony, especially the leg press that you know, just that kind of burn in my quads. But it wasn't, you know, if I'm honest, if someone had a gun to my head, I know I could have done more. Now, in in that, and I think that's probably quite typical for a lot of people. If you had a yeah. gun to your head, could you do more? And if the answer is yes, then I guess the question to you is, should I have done more? Uh, in that in that case, no, because uh, because you were not, and that's well, you probably should have not done, should shouldn't have not done the workout at all. <laughs> Forget about the fasting bit. Just uh, imagine but it's a normal that, day. <laughs> because that burning sensation when when you fasted, you tend to be more dehydrated and lack of electrolytes, and that actually can lead to that that having that burn much more easy. Much yeah, more easy. I, that's what I felt. It was it was a horrible workout. Yeah, I'm not doing that again. Uh, that, 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 yeah, personally, uh, if in the past, I would I've always say like you know, you need to power through. You need to really push it hard. Go to the gym no matter what, but you need to have your your mind in the right place because intensiveness. You don't need to go to failure. I mean, you can go two reps short. You can go one rep short, but you still need to train hard. Uh, and you cannot compensate lack of intensiveness by adding junk volume. And to me, uh, a set that you don't see an increase in performance, you don't go close to your level. To me, that's not junk volume, but pretty darn close. I'm not saying it didn't do anything, but certainly it, it wasn't optimal. Now, the problem is, if you would have pushed those sets to the limit in the state you were in, you would probably have done more harm than good mm. because like the, uh, the fasted thing and because you were fasted, okay, the, the amount of cortisol that was being released was tremendous because you needed to mobilize even more energy. Even before the workout, your cortisol was high because you needed it to maintain a stable blood sugar level. So it was through the roof. So now if you go to, you go, you have the psychological stress because of the pain. 
because pain is psychological stressor, which will increase cortisol. If on top of that, you keep pushing and pushing, and you're doing a volume on top of that, that would have been too much for your current state, in that fasted state, recovering from the fasted state. It would not have been a good idea. But you need to use, uh, to be a discriminatory, like knowing when to push and when to hold. Uh, and again, on those big compound movements on the free weight, it's probably safer to stop a bit short. On the machine, it's probably best if you can, if you feel like crap. That's why, okay, for example, let's say you feel like crap. You know today is not going to be a good workout. Well, me, when that happens, I will, my, my instinct is, okay, I'm only going to do one set, but I'm going to make it count. I mean, it's, I don't want to be in the gym. It sucks. I, I want to get out. Uh, I, I'm, but I, I'm pretty sure that if I only do one, I can give everything up for that. So it's done after that. I'm, I'm done. So when you feel like crap, me, my instinct is actually to lower the reps. It's funny. And I think it has to do with personality. Me, when I feel like crap, when I'm tired, when I'm feeling flat, my instinct is I want to do less work, but I'm, I'm willing to do work harder to uh, be allowed to do less work. So I will decrease my reps. I will decrease my set, but I will push super hard on that set because one, and it's done. When I'm in great physique, when I'm in great shape, I'm energetic, then it's, that's when I, I tend to do more sets. Yeah, yeah. I, I find myself quite often in, in, in a similar predicament where, you know, the workout's hard, the workout's really hard, and I get through it and I go, do you know what? That wasn't a good workout, but I kind of pat myself on the back that I still done what? I'd done the previous week or even more. So even not being optimal, I've still managed to get the work done, but it felt worse. It felt like it was a hard workout. I'm going to use you to, to, to argue against yourself here. Yeah, go for it. Because you said earlier that you were like doing like all those sets and you didn't feel like it. it, it. <laughs> you just told me that you have many of those workouts where you, you feel the workouts hard you're not in, and you think it's a bad workout. To me, that is the definition of being in a mental or neurological state of quote unquote overreaching. Lovely. That, that's the sign of the fantastic, fantastic pivot. Let's go there, right? So overtraining. I know you said a bunch of stuff up front, and unfortunately I've forgotten them, but I am going to re-listen. <laughs> but overtraining, I, I suspect, I suspect, Christian, I think I quite often find myself in a place of overtraining being overtrained. You know, my sleep can sometimes, you know, be a little bit shit. Um, I can, you know, I can sometimes have funky workouts. But when I think about it objectively, if you ask me quickly, I say, well, no, my, my, my performance is good. I'm doing what I expected. I'm still lifting more, whether it be more volume or incremental weights on the bar or what have you. So, you know, by the measure, objectively, my my workout performance still seems appropriate and progressive. Yet, I can, if I'm brutally honest, there there are some kind of men, you know, there are some mental lows, and there are some sleep issues, um, and there are some harder workouts when perhaps last week it wasn't so hard, uh, and relatively it's approximately the same. So I suspect I find myself overtrained more than I I realize, but I don't know how to be aware when I'm overtrained. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can just kind of double click back into that and help me understand, you know, objectively, like Steve, it's not just HRV, you know, there's yeah. this, this, and this, and yeah. you've got well, to dial it back. It's funny you mentioned it. I was, for, for, I, I will get back 
uh, to the like being still being able to add more weight to the bar gradually because that is not a sign of not being overtrained. I'm going to get to that in a moment. Uh, I was giving a, a seminar in France a few weeks back, and one of the attendees was probably one of the to- the top strength coaches in France. The guy trained uh, like the two best triathletes in the world, for example, worked with lots of different athletes. And what he told me is that. There's lots of research recently being done in triathlon, which is probably the sport where you need to modulate volume the most because it's, it's a tremendous amount of volume on three different activities. And what he told me is that what is the most correlated with biological markers of overtraining is how you are feeling after the workouts. So, it, 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 or if how you are feeling the day after, during the workout or whatever. So, how you are feeling, the, the rate of perceived effort or the rate of how I'm feeling has more correlation with are you overtrained or not than the actual measurables. And that's where it, it kind of sucks because only you know how you feel. Even worse is if you've been quote unquote overtrained for a while. You kind of think that this is your baseline. This is normal for you. But but every time you have a workout, where after the the workout, even if the, the the metrics are fine, you feel like this was a shitty workout. You're not satisfied, and you need to convince yourself that you did a good job. That's a clear sign that you're actually in the overtraining zone or about to enter it. Now, the fact that you are able to add weight to the bar does not in correlate with lack of overtraining in the least bit. I've, I've worked with tons of elite athletes who would hit PRs in the worst possible mental and physical state. I had one bobsleigh athlete uh, because of an unforeseen uh, amount of stress in his life. Uh, he spent four weeks. He couldn't sleep. Uh, his appetite was down, no sex drive, no motivation to train. But once he got into the gym, he would actually hit heavier and heavier every weights, even hitting PRs in the gym. So, so I'm not overtrained because I'm still making PRs. That's not how it works. Uh, the thing is that the body is built for survival. If it feels like I'm in a state, I'm about to die. I'm more prone to being beaten by a tiger if I'm facing it like that. Well, when you are in that st- stressful situation, that, in that physical state, the body will be a lot more prone to release that big jolt of adrenaline. It's a last hope for survival. It's that last punch when you're about to get knocked down. It's when I'm hanging from a cliff and I'm for some reason I'm able to pull myself up. It's the adrenergic system allowing me to get a boost in performance. And that actually is a clear sign that there's a problem. If you're feeling like crap, if you're not sleeping well, if your appetite is down, but you're still moving the weight up, it's a clear sign you're in deep shit because you are functioning on the seminative nervous system. You are overloading that adrenaline. You're pumping adrenaline like crazy just so that you will survive what your body senses is a fight to the death. And to make sure that you survive, it will overproduce adrenaline to allow you to survive the fight. So, so it's quite possible to keep increasing performance even when you are under recovering. And would That's you say would you say a type one A is probably more prone to kind of over leveraging adrenaline and just kind of list, not listening to the signal? Absolutely, absolutely. They will do anything to reach their goal. They will do anything to reach their goal. Absolutely. 
But yeah, that's, that, that's interesting. That's a problem. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I I don't know I don't know I I may I may well be have found myself over the last two years in periods which you've just described, um, but it's hard, isn't it? I mean, because you as you say, you're relying on how you feel, and I can convince myself that I'm fine more often than not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can always reason that I'm feeling bad because of something different than training. Yeah, yeah. and again, and I remember, okay, I was. I was in, in California like wow, 18 years ago. I remember that conversation. I was actually at a tailor buying a suit because we, uh, biotest, we, would, we, would, we, we had a booth at the Olympia kiosk and we had to wear a, a, a black suit. So I had to go buy a suit because I was in California, far from home, didn't have anything. So I went to the, the, the tailor and the guy... I started talking to the guy because he was an older gentleman, like 60 years old, but in very good physical shape. He looked clean and stuff. So we started talking about training. And so I'm buying this suit for the Olympia. And so I used to train with Arnold and stuff like that. So even today, I did 20 sets. I did 30 sets. For him, the measure of a good workout was how many sets he did. And that was a very popular mentality in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. How much volume did you do? Uh, and it actually, I believe it actually transpired even to today. And people who are workaholics, people who are overachievers, people will, these guys will take uh, pride in how much work they're doing. I'm a hard worker, but the amount of work you're doing is never a measure of being, of doing a good workout. Volume is only a metric to amplify or decrease the response from the main stimulus, which is how hard you're training, gradually overloading the muscle progressive overload. Volume allows you to amplify the, 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 uh, the stimulus. The stimulus itself is the set. The stimulus is how hard I'm making those fast switch fibers work during my work set, how much fatigue and how much trauma, mechanical stress I'm imposing on those fibers during that set. Volume will amplify that stressor. If I do four sets instead of two, then I'm amplifying the stress by a factor of two, which in some some case will increase the training response, but in some cases it will decrease it if the cortisol is too high, or if I'm causing too much muscle damage for me to repair. That's the thing, because, okay, when you're training, you're gonna increase protein synthesis for 24 to 36 hours after the workout in the muscle being trained. In reality, only around 30, 32 hours, you're gonna have a protein synthesis conducive to increasing muscle mass. What happens is after 24 hours, protein synthesis in the trained muscle is elevated by around 115%. At 36 hours, it's back down to 15% above normal, which is not very significant. So you have 24, you have 30, 32 hours to repair the damage that was done, then add muscle on top of that. Here's the thing. If I'm causing so much damage, and it takes me 28 hours just to repair the damage that was caused. Now I only have two, four hours to add new muscle tissue. I'm not going to add that much muscle in two to four hours. If it takes me 12 hours to repair the damage, now I'm going to have 
20 hours, uh, tw sorry, I'm going to have, yeah, 20 hours to build new muscle. I'm going to build a lot more muscle. See what I mean? Mm. At one point, doing more volume can actually be detrimental. There was a study being uh, cond uh, conducted. They, they, they looked at German volume training, right? 10 sets of 10 reps. And they compared 10 sets of 10 reps with five sets of 10 reps. And the, set, the, the group using five sets had greater strength gain and greater size gains than a group doing 10 sets. I know. So I, mean, I, think, I think there's, all, I think there's alternate, alternate studies that uh, I know the likes of, say, Menel Henselman's and uh, Greg Knuckles. I, I'm sure they have, they have mentioned other studies that say, actually, there's some real good value in German, German high-volume training. I've done a research on that. I haven't seen any study. I will, I will I'll backtrack myself and make sure that what I'm saying is legit for the audience. But I, I have, I'm pretty sure I've read maybe a year ago, both of them saying some, some, there's value in as much frequency as you can do, assuming that you're mapping that with an appropriate level of intensiveness. Maybe, well, well, maybe, maybe not. There may be some studies. I mean, there are some studies showing that there's, and we can go back like 30 years when they, they uh, back in the uh, the Arthur Jones day, the, the, the inventor of uh, of Nautilus, but also of high intensity training. Who, Arthur Jones was the guy who, who trained Mike Manzer, all those high intensity guys. So the low volume trend really comes from him. And even starting then, there was a big debate. I remember in the, in the 90s, a big, the big debate in the training circle was, uh, is one set to failure more effective than multiple sets? And we had studies proving both sides to be right, like you mentioned. But, but that was not necessarily comparing like very high volume. Like 10 sets of an exercise, as far as I know, when it's been studied, it has never been shown to be more effective than fewer sets of the same exercise. That's not to say that doing 10 sets for a muscle is not gonna be effective. They just look at that one exercise. But the point is, and again, everybody's gonna have their own ceiling when it comes to volume. Uh, and you also need to look at uh, the, the length of the study, look at the people doing the study itself. Uh, I think that the more, I, I mentioned that earlier, the more advanced you are, the less you're gonna respond well to volume. The more beginner intimidated you are, the more volume will work for you. Another factor, okay, and that's important, okay? How did these guys in those studies train? If it was a training program conducted by the sports scientists, I'm pretty darn sure that they, they probably did not go to failure or anywhere close to it. I mean, you take a, 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 a subject that is at best a recreational trainee, you have a scientist who's probably not himself a hardcore lifter. So for him, stopping when it starts to be painful, stopping when it starts to be painful is normal. So maybe these guys actually stop four reps short of failure, which is the normal intensity you see in most gyms. Now, if you stop four reps short of failure, I will argue that you will get better results in the short term if you do more volume. Because now each set, will only give you two or three maximally effective reps. So you will need that volume. See what I mean? Yeah. So you yeah. need to look at all the variables together. And even then, those studies are not necessarily 100% applicable to the real life. We can only look at them and, uh, and make conclusions, make theories about what will, will it be in the gym. 
And again, the problem is it's also individual, right? I mean, if you have a weak immune system, for example, then you're not going to be able to repair muscle damage as easily. If you have a very strong immune system, if you're younger, you're going to repair muscle damage much faster. So if that's another thing, right? Paul, myself, we're both in our 40s. And people are getting older, even, even older than we are. So another factor that diminishes your capacity to volume is how effective your immune system is. Specifically, how many stem cells or satellite cells you have. Satellite cells are cells that will give, that will donate their genetic material to repair damaged tissue, either muscle tissue, the skin, organs, whatever. Anywhere there's damage, the satellite cells driven by the immune system will give the material to repair the damage. As you're getting older, okay, those stem cells or satellite cells decreases. If they decrease, your immune system is not as effective as repairing damage. It's actually one of the theories of aging. Maybe your skin is aging. Maybe your organs are aging because you don't have enough cells to repair them as well as you did before. The same thing applies to muscle damage. So if we are, you are in your 40s, in your 50s, and you're brutally strong, you can cause a lot of muscle damage in a few sets. And you don't have the immune system to repair a large amount, uh, a large amount of muscle damage. So that's the perfect storm to not respond well to volume. Being strong and being older is the worst possible recipe for volume tolerance. If you take someone who's 12, 18, 20, 25, with a very healthy immune system and not a large training experience, of course they're going to be able to tolerate a lot more volume because they have the stem, they have the immune system for it, and they're also not strong enough to cause the same systemic damage as uh, the older, stronger guy had. I love those theories. That that just makes that makes perfect sense. I, I know you're you're theorizing, but I can I can I can do it. I can do a thought experiment and go. Do you know what? That kind of makes sense. And I know there's a lot of science around stem cells and aging um and telomeres and all that kind of thing um you 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 spoke about aging and i think that's a great segue to the last kind of finale of this discussion you did touch on it earlier and it was about um the limits of the natural physique not mm. not the enhanced physique the natural physique and you said anywhere i think you said anywhere between 40 and 60 pounds of muscle on your otherwise normal weight is that what you had said roughly that's, really, that, that's the the utmost limit so I would say that most people will not get to the 60 pound and most it would be at the 40, 50. So for example, me, my, my, from my family, from what I'm seeing in my, my brothers, my father, my uncles, my, my normal adult body weight would have been around 170 pounds. So, so if you add uh, 40 to 50 to that, that's 210 to 20. And that's pretty much where I've been for the past eight, 10 years. Now, if I get, that would be like a 10-ish, 12% body fat. I, will, I can get lower, like 205, 200 if I'm super lean. I can get to 222, 225 if I'm a bit fatter. But I've, I've never, like the only time I was heavier than that was when I, in my bodybuilding days and I, I did steroids for, for a few years. But not, not continuously, but a few cycles. That I was heavier back then. I was like 230, 235. But, but that, that, and that's, of course, there are always genetic outliers. So I'm, I'm kind of wary 
of saying that, for example, let's look at somebody, okay, you are five foot eight, you're 215 lean, you are not natural because it's impossible to be 6% body fat at 220 pounds at five foot eight, for example. And yeah. people get accused of that because of they, they because what they did, they, they have that formula, right? They compare body weight and height and they establish that that is the limit that a natural can be. But there will always be genetic outliers. I've worked with so many high-level athletes that I've seen some freaks of nature in my life. I've, I've seen a guy, uh, I've trained a guy, he was an American football player. Uh, he was at a peak of his career, was 150 kilos, and he bench pressed uh, 250. And people ask me, well, what did you do with call for his bench press? Well, honestly, what I did was Carl, when he was 14 years old, he bench pressed 140. When he was 16, he bench pressed 140 for 10 reps. When he was 18, he was military pressing 140 for reps. That's just kilograms. A, that's, yeah, exactly. Wow. Just create, yeah, at 14 years old, bench pressing 140. We have freaks in, in this world. Yeah. So saying that, I, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, he was a soccer player of all things. He was black, which helps. Uh, he was five foot six, and he was 85 kilos shredded, shredded. Looked like a bodybuilder, but never lifted a weight in his life, much less taking steroids. But if you look at the metrics, it's impossible to be that weight at that height and natural. But he was. I'm not saying it's normal. I'm not saying you're going to see many of those guys. But there will always be genetic outliers. One thing that to, to remember, when the, uh, the, 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 the guy who did the original formula, uh, Casey Buck, if I'm, not remember, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, with a PhD in exercise science, he looked at when the bodybuilders from the golden era, like before 1950, because starting from 1950, it's iffy. Yeah, yeah. Testosterone was used in the, in 45, and, and I, it is for, known for sure that in 1954 the Russians were using testosterone injection. So it's not a far cry to believe that some bodybuilders were using steroids as early as 1954. And of course, Dynabol was developed in the 60s. So they look at bodybuilders prior to the 50s. Now, there are many problems with that. First, the measurements given, well, we can't measure right now, so we have to go with what the magazine told us. So I'm not sure they are 100% accurate, okay? Second, uh, the, the level of condition is not the same as today. Third, uh, these guys might not have been the best genetics of their time. Because very few people trained with weights back then. Yeah. Very few people compete in bodybuilding. Nowadays, we have a lot more. And we have, when we have those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people lifting weights seriously, then the outliers will pop out. Maybe those who were the best bodybuilders back in the 40s and 50s were those scrawny guys when they were super small when they were kids and they decided to lift weights to compensate for lack of size. So maybe they had actually poor size genetics and got big despite their genetics. Maybe if the big kid that never wanted to lift weight because he was still the biggest kid around, maybe if he started training, he would have been twice as big. Maybe not twice as big, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So there's a limitation in looking at 
bodybuilders pre-1950s. The measurement might not be accurate, and it might not have been the best genetics. So it's kind of, I'm pretty sure there's a ceiling. But that ceiling would be for the average person. That is going to be around 40, 50 pounds over your normal adult body weight, but they will always be outliers. So I will personally never accuse anybody because it falls outside of what should be normal for a natural lifter. Well, that's that's fair enough. I think it's easy for us all to just, you know, bl- you know, blame or, or judge someone on, on steroids because their body just looks ridiculous and yours yours doesn't look like that, so they must be on gear. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the question I, what I wanted to ask specifically around the, the kind of the, that piece is, is age. Because you've just said, as you age, it gets harder, uh, generally mm. speaking. So let's use me as an example. I'm 38 years old. I've been training. I've been training all my life, but with no, no understanding what I've done and with no consistency. Properly, I'd say like hand on heart, properly for a couple of years, two, three years max. Uh, within that time... You know, I've gone, I would say if, if I stripped away the, the fat from a few years ago, I probably would have landed around about 175, probably. And, you know, at 10%, I'm about 200 these days. So I feel that maybe I've put on 25 pounds. It kind of looks like that probably is the amount I put on. I, for maybe, maybe the reasons we spoke about today, uh, growth continues to i still make progress growth measurements and and all the other measurements measurements you can make objective measurements are improving but at a very very slow clip so it'd be easy for me to say i just started a bit too late you know i I started properly at 35 36 and i have put on 20 25 pounds i kind of feel good about myself but you know can i get another 15 to get my proper goal to get that physique that i really want is, is, is it possible or am I, have I now passed it because of no, so age? For you, so age is not the main limiting factor. Not nowadays with the improvement in, in the food and nutrition so, and, I will, and the training modalities. I believe that uh, hormonally speaking, uh, even when it comes to stem cells, most modern men, if they are taking care of themselves, I Anything before 45, you cannot use that as, a, as an excuse. Uh, so a, aging, when you're 50, when you're 60, or if you, your lifestyle led to uh, premature uh, aging, yeah, that can be a problem. But when you're 38, when you're 40, when you're 42, 45, it's probably not the limiting factor. The main reason, let's take me for example, the main reason why I cannot progress that much anymore is because I have... 25, 27 serious years under my belt. They were not always optimal, but I w- I'm going to say that they were pretty darn close to being being optimal for the past at least 22 years. Because when I was uh, 18, I was trained by a very qualified strength coach. When I played football, then I switched to Olympic weightlifting, trained by good coaches. And from that point on, I did my own training and it was already pretty solid. So I have at least like, let's say 22, 23 years of very solid training. So that for that reason, I'm at my limit. I'm gaining all that muscle. My body is well adapted to training. You have been doing well for two or three years. You've gained, let's say 25 pounds, which is about 60% of what you can gain. But because your body is not yet fully adapted, you only have two or three hardcore training years, you have more room for adaptation. It's not so much the age. That's a problem. It's the trainability of the system, the organism. Trainability is how much room you have 
for improvement versus where you should have been. So you're, you still have like 20 pounds of possible improvement left in you. Now, to reach that, you're going to need to reach those 20 pounds before you reach a point where your hormonal status is less anabolic. That's probably going to be 45. So you realistically have seven, five, seven really good years in front of you. Now, here's the thing. A human person, a human body will be able to have 40, 50-ish pounds of muscle over their normal adult body weight. And half of that normally will happen the first two years of training, mm. of, of serious training. I mean, not like just I'm going to hit the weight. I'm going to do some, some, some health stuff at the gym. I'm hardcore training specifically aimed at building muscle, knowing what I'm doing. That person will gain around 50% of what they can gain the first two years of training. After that, it's going to be a much slower process, much slower process. Doesn't mean you're not gaining. You can easily gain 10, 15 pounds the first year you're training, seriously. After that, five, five pounds is very good. After that, three pounds is going to be awesome until you reach that point. The closer you are to your limit, that 40, 50 pounds, the longer it takes to add even one pound of muscle. So it's really a matter of trusting the process because what happens oftentimes is, let's say you gain like crazy for two years. For two years, like it, everything seems linear. I'm, I added 20 pounds in two years, 10 pounds per year. Then after that, you, 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 your gains start to slow down. Then you start you start to question what I'm doing in the gym. Am I doing the right thing? Now you're trying to do more volume, less volume, trying to play around with variables, and you don't know what the hell you're doing. You're doing more arm than good and progression stuff. Sounds you just a little bit like me. <laughs> like myself also. You need to be objective. You need to be objective and trust the process. Because after those first 20, 25 pounds, every pound you gain will take a lot of time. So you need to stop the process. Just because you're not progressing at the same rate you were didn't, doesn't mean you're not doing the right job to get those gains going. Mm. Yeah, so this is interesting because it's very easy to be impatient and get frustrated with uh, the progress that you've made. But I think if I'm being honest with myself, um, you know, this year, for example, so I, I set out a two-year plan to, to build the best body I can within two years of training properly, seriously, dialing in absolutely everything from a wellness and nutrition perspective. Hey, I'm probably have, I haven't been perfect. I know I haven't. But during that time, you know, from the January 2018 until just most recently, my lean mass has jumped up. What is that? It's 13 pounds. Now, I've got to cut a little bit. So that probably will drop a little bit from there. But hey, say it's about after the cut might be 10 pounds. But that that for me sounds pretty good, but it, it also doesn't sound good enough. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It should have been faster. Because of Instagram and that's because of society. We, we yeah. have people, I gained 10 kilos in the past two months, or I gained uh, seven kilos in the last month with this supplement, stuff like that. It, it's all bullshit. Uh, it's physiologically impossible. I mean, yes, you can have fluctuation in body weight based on water retention. Maybe... Uh, you can actually have faster, a very like a, a spurt in muscle growth that will last two or three weeks. It's possible, but most of what you see being claimed uh, on the Instagram, on Facebook, it, it's either drugs or it's people regaining lost muscle after a layoff. Interesting. But in reality, I mean, if you gain 
let's say 0.5 pounds of muscle per week. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's very high. Normally, most people, if they gain a quarter of a pound per uh, per month. week, per week, per week, that, that's awesome. But if you gain one pound per month, that's that's extraordinary past the body, the, the beginner stage. That's what people don't realize. Mm -hmm. So if gaining one pound a month is amazing, well, if you can you look at three months span, two or three pounds for three months is pretty solid. It doesn't look like that. And here's the problem. Because of hydration level, because of stomach content, because of colon content, your body weight can easily fluctuate five or six pounds a day. So you might actually not even see those pounds of muscle on the scale because your body weight fluctuates so much. Yeah, I, I, was, talking, I was talking about lean mass there. So from, I went from 170 to one, 183 uh, in, the, in what is that, 22 months? Um, I, I don't know whether that's good or bad. but That's, um, very, that's very solid. That's very solid. And then that's, was, you know, that's me relatively, you know, new into training properly, but I had been training for all my life. You know, I've always been hitting the gym, but not with, in, you know, with the right intensity, the right focus, the right programming. So it kind of, yeah, I, I would have assumed though, like if I, if I take a look at, you know, the beginning of this year, <clears throat> from the beginning of this year, it only looks like, gosh, what is that? Four pounds. So that that's in like 10 months. That, that sounds rubbish but you think no, that's no, all right it's very good for your state yeah. i mean that's exactly what that's exactly the example i mentioned earlier the first two years you can easily gain 10 pounds per year then it, it's going to slow down to five ish pounds per year if you're doing a great job then it's going to be two pounds per year it, that is hard to swallow but that's <laughs> how it works i mean the first and that's because adaptation to strength training to bodybuilding training are very rapid in the first two years of training. But after that, you're going to fight with your life for every pound you had. So you need to start to trust the process. Just because you cannot sustain the same rate doesn't mean not progressing. Love that. I think that's a, a great close. This was great. Thank you for, you know, not just answering the question, but really digging into it and giving us food for thought, giving us science, giving us anecdote. I love it. And thank you for allowing me to share my story with you, Christian, and just kind of as you continue to do, counsel me, uh, which hopefully as, adds value to the people listening. Because I think um, I'm fairly typical <laughs> um, in terms of my pursuit and maybe some of my frustrations and mistakes. Um, Christian, is there anything that the guys need to know in terms of recent developments in you know the work you're doing, uh, the services you're offering, or just things that people need to know about your whereabouts over the coming couple of months? Uh, not, not be honest, not really. I'm not really good at, at marketing myself. You can always check out for updates on uh, my Instagram, Tib Army, T H I B A R M Y, uh, or on Facebook. But uh, I'm basically any new programs yeah. or anything you've got yeah, we, we updated, on the training updated the trading programs based on the system I use with athletes. The system I use with athletes uh, is quite unusual. I'm actually writing a book on that. We have 
they have three weekly workouts, which are whole body workouts. The reason is that athletes also need to sprint. They need to do conditioning work. They cannot spend five days a week in the gym. So it's three days a week. It's whole body training. And on one day, we emphasize eccentric contraction. On the other day, isometric. And on the other day, concentric actions. So the training programs that are now in the program, they are derivative of that system, but adapted to other goals like muscle growth, like fat loss. So sometimes you will add a bodybuilding workout to that or we'll change your training methods to maximize the growth. But it's a method I've been using with athletes for like 21 years. Of course, it's been uh, made a bit more, made better right now, but I've, I've had some crazy responses, both from body composition standpoint, as well as uh, strength performance. And your website, fibarmy.com, has, has actually got quite a few programs that you've got. You've got tests, you've got neurotyping courses, You've got uh, nutrition programs and training programs, all purchasable, right? Yeah, I also recently filmed uh, a new uh, hypertrophy course, which will be up in a few weeks. I also filmed one on on strength and sports performance, which should be up by 2020. And of course, the seminars, which are uh, uh, written on the website itself. Awesome, man. Cool. I'm going to make sure I reference all of that in the show notes. Christian, um, we're probably not going to speak until uh, some point next year. So listen, thank you for everything you've been doing just for the world. And you know, your focus is amazing. Your energy is amazing. Thank you for helping Adapt Nation out and our listeners over the year because we've we've chatted four times, which is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, listen, man, enjoy the run up to Christmas. Uh, and uh, thanksgiving enjoy your time with your family and your beautiful son and um yeah just thank you for doing everything that you're doing man and i i I really appreciate everything that you say on this podcast i know this conversation is going to change the game for me again man so it's it's been awesome it's really been awesome cool man good stuff enjoy i'll speak to you later all right take care take care man wow What an episode. What an episode. It was jam-packed full of goodness. And I hope that there's a lot of takeaways here for you. Now, please remember that the Be Your Best Self-Optimization program is imminently available. And you can go check that out by going to adaptnation.io and on the homepage, there will be a notify button. Press that and you will get notified as soon as it drops. And you're going to want to see this. This is a game-changing product. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.